0: The communion message this evening can be found in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Uh, We'll read together uh, the first uh, 20 verses. And we'll be considering uh, mainly uh, verses 13 uh, through 20. Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called... The Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised. And sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, and when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold... When you are entered into the city, shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found, as he had said unto them, And they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this. And divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Dear congregation, one thing that has been so endearing to Christians throughout the centuries when they read the Bible is the nature of the unity of the Bible. Now you may ask, well, what do I mean when I say they love the nature of the unity of the Bible? Well, the Bible is a cohesive book. It's a united, unified book. Or to say it in uh, cast it in, in negative terms, it is not a disjointed and disconnected uh, book. It's not a, a book that contradicts itself in any way, shape, or, or form. It's not thrown together in a haphazard, in a disorganized way. Rather, it is highly organized. It's a highly organized book uh, that shows a tremendous nature of consistency and unity wherever you read it. Uh, There are critics, of course, that turn to the Word of God, and they say, well, there's contradictions all over the place in the Bible. Well, uh, we don't have time, of course, to to focus on it today, Uh, but if we think that there are contradictions in the bible those contradictions are only apparent those contradictions are something that are happening in our own mind on the page of scripture there is nothing inconsistent and nothing disorganized nothing disjointed it is a completely unified book it's completely cohesive Now, that is also true when we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament segments of Scripture. Even though uh, the Scripture was written by some 40 or so authors over the period of some 1,500 years, yet there is a a unity about the Bible that mankind has marveled about since we have received this entire bound book, as it were, from the very hand of God himself. And the message of Scripture, whether you turn to the Old Testament or New Testament, is so united, and that is because, of course, it comes. It's a message that comes from one God who has revealed himself in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John Calvin uh, so beautifully painted the metaphor. He says that the, the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testaments are the two lips of God which he speaks to us and even in speaking to us, he doesn't speak to us in, in lofty language that is uh, so beyond us that we can't understand a word that he is saying. But he comes down, and Calvin said so, so wonderfully, that he lisps to us and speaks so simply, almost like a, like a great intellect or as the, the great wise one down to the level of a simple child and that of course is what we so desperately need. Well this evening hour I'm not going to be focusing on the doctrine or the nature or the attribute of unity in the Bible. But I do want us to keep that uh, that idea and that thought uh, at least in 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 the back of our minds or in in the front of our minds if that's more helpful as we consider as we consider an activity that the church in the oldest in the Old Testament did engage in, and an activity that the church in the New Testament is called to engage in or to practice. And what is that? Well, uh, maybe you already are thinking and putting it all together from the chapter that we read together, Luke chapter 22, the Old Testament church practiced or engaged in and kept the Passover. Passover in the Old Testament time. And the New Testament church is called to, put into practice and taught to engage in the Lord's Supper. And we are called to do that until the time that Jesus Christ comes again. And the point of unity, uh, where we find, or the point of connectiveness, we could also say, where we find these two events really uh, coming together, uh, joining together, is here in this passage in Luke chapter 22, where we find the Lord Jesus Christ at one particular point in history brings together the Old Testament practice of Passover and the New Testament practice of the Lord's Supper as he initiates the very first Lord's Supper in world history to a singular, at a singular point. Now I want to be looking at various uh, uh, various expressions uh, between verses 13 and uh, verses uh, verse 20 here in Luke chapter uh, 22, where we find uh, the disciples in in verse thir- thirteen making ready the Passover, and when the hour was come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and and then he said to them, with desire, I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. And so Jesus, there, he he is he is engaging in and partaking in this Passover meal uh, that had been. Uh, that had been uh, practiced for for thousands of years up until that point. And then with hardly a blink of an eye, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, just just turns his hand. And the Passover is now done, and the Lord's Supper begins. It's almost like a, a completely seamless transition uh, many have used the word morphs into or changes, the, the Passover changes into uh, the Lord's Supper. And we, we see that in, in verse 19, or verse 17, rather. He took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And there he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And then verse 19, he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you, this due in remembrance of me, And so there's the Lord Jesus Christ engaging in the Passover, changing it into the Lord's Supper, and then telling them to do this in remembrance of him. And so our very theme when we consider all of this is do this in remembrance of the Passover lamb of God. Do this, that is the practice of Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of the Passover Lamb of God. In terms of actual years, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh on earth was relatively short. He lived for some 30 years in relative obscurity. Now uh, We are not told very much about his uh, first 30 years. Uh, but then those last three years, he engaged, of course, in a public ministry in the flesh. And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really is a record of the ministry of those three years of the Lord Jesus Christ for the most part part and then at the end of his 33 years at the prime of his life when uh, when mankind is seen to be at their strongest he laid down his life as the great lamb of god and the bible teaches us here and elsewhere as well that on the evening before he actually laid down his life on the cross he instituted uh, this, uh, the one of the two sacraments uh, that the faithful church understands as being instituted by the, by Christ has kept since that very day. Uh, the two sacraments, of course, are water baptism and uh, the Lord's supper or communion. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26 reminds us that the faithful church is to put into practice the Lord's Supper and when doing so, we show or we testify or we witness the Lord's death until he comes again in glory. And so the the faithful church has sought their best to fulfill that demand and that call of the Lord Jesus Christ and to do that faithfully. Now, no church, of course, is perfect. And uh, the church has struggled with things like the frequency of the Lord's Supper. How often are we supposed to engage in the Lord's Supper? And how regular are we supposed to do it in our particular denomination, our local church as well? Uh, We, uh, for the most part, we we hold it every three months, four times a year. And that, of course, is all uh, all. Uh, resting upon that, that one little word that Jesus said as often or oft as you eat this bread and drink this uh, cup you do show the Lord's death until he come and so uh, the question is how often is often and the church has struggled with that, uh, that throughout all of history but uh, the That all aside, and all the details of the the Lord's Supper and Communion aside, we read here in Luke chapter 22, uh, the record of the institution of this supper from the very mouth and guidance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But as I've suggested already, As we find the Lord Jesus Christ instituting this supper and calling his disciples to uh, to take the cup and to divide it among themselves, and him breaking the bread and eating the bread, and him testifying uh, that the bread is is his body or is symbolic of his body, it's very very clear here uh, from this chapter, probably one of the clearest chapters in the Bible that the Lord's Supper, the New Testament Lord's Supper, clearly has a background to it. It has a background. The Lord's Supper did not just mysteriously and spontaneously arise in the New Testament time at the time of Jesus, some 2,000 years ago, but it clearly was preceded by something. And that which was preceded by was the Old Testament Passover, the meal uh, that the Jews faithfully kept and practiced for thousands of years. Now I want to just give a, a little background on that uh, Passover meal. We read about the details of it in uh, Exodus chapter 12. God willing, of course, in a series in Exodus, we're going to get to that eventually. But we read about the details there about how that every family had to, every family in Israel was called to and given guidance by God to choose a lamb. To choose a lamb that was without spot and with, with, without blemish, a lamb of three years old. And the fathers were to kill that lamb. They were to collect the blood and they were to use that blood to be painted on the, on the sides and on the top and uh, the left and the right side of the door frames of each house. And not on the threshold, and uh, they were to collect that blood, and they were then called also to eat that lamb in a very very specific way, as the sacrificial uh, as the sacrificial lamb. But it was the blood that was collected from each lamb that was really at the heartbeat, if you will, of the whole Passover ritual and practice because Israel in that time of Exodus 12, as we've been uh, considering in our Exodus series was in bondage in the land of Egypt and God in his wisdom, he sent plagues, didn't he? He sent plagues. You can remember uh, that, that maybe even stories from our childhood, uh, those, those plagues. And so the Lord sent uh, nine plagues at first, and he sent them to Egypt and to Israel. But God, in his great mercy, and his wonderful mercy, he didn't allow Israel to experience any of the nature of those first nine plagues at all. It was only the Egyptians uh, that were touched and experienced them. And then God, after those nine plagues, he says there is one more plague, and that, of course, is the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was the worst of of all of the plagues. In the tenth plague, the Lord promised death of the firstborn of every single family. Now, this was an incredibly, incredibly uh, terrible plague. Not only because it was death itself. That's sad, of course, itself. And it was a death of a person in the family, and particularly the death of the firstborn. Now, it's hard for our 21st century minds to to get around, but the firstborn in a family had such heavy weight put upon it. Because in the line of progression in those patriarchal families in the the Old Testament time, uh, the, the way it followed was that the firstborn, the firstborn son particularly, would would receive would receive the birthright. You may remember that story about how how Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. Or Esau, to put it the other way, he he sold his birthright to Jacob, his brother, uh, just because he was hungry. Uh, we read that in the in the uh, in the uh, first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. But. A birthright meant that they received the father's all the father's wealth and, 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 and honor and, and blessing and, and all the rest that goes with it. And now you can imagine for a system that it had been in place for, for thousands and thousands of years, much, much time, and, and suddenly there's a threat that all of that is going to go sideways, beside the fact that the firstborn would die. This was, was absolute tragedy in the minds of every single Israelite, God's chosen people. But God also said, there's a plague coming, but I will show you a way that that plague of death can be avoided and so he says, this is how it can be avoided by way of the Passover. You take this lamb, you slay this lamb, you bleed this lamb, you take the blood of the lamb, you paint it on the, th- on the, on the sides, the doorposts, the top, uh, the left and the right sides of the house, not on the threshold. And when the angel of uh, the Lord, uh, who would bring death, Uh, to the household, would come and would see that blood. The angel of death would pass over, literally pass over, and would not then visit that household. Now, that, of course, in a very beautiful and powerful, illustrative way, points to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The blood of the lamb on the doorposts points to the blood, the necessary blood of Jesus on the metaphorical doorposts of our hearts. And when the blood is there, the spiritual blood of Jesus is there. He bypasses those who would be under that curse, absolute curse of death. Not just the firstborn, uh, but but every individual uh, would uh, be subject to God's curse of of eternal death. But when we have blood on the uh, doorposts of our heart, God in his great mercy passes over and does not visit us, therefore, with eternal death. But the Passover lamb certainly points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also know that. From how Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, when he says, Even Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed, is sacrificed, rather, for us. Christ himself is the New Testament Passover. He's the New Testament Passover lamb of God. And so the whole Passover, you see, the whole Passover, is a picture of the plan of redemption. The sacrifice of the lamb points to Christ's sacrifice. The eating of the lamb points to the need of feeding uh, by faith from the Savior to be nourished. The journey, journeying away from Egypt, the fleeing from sin, after the Passover, is a is in it's in picture form. The story of the Christian life, how we, uh, being filled with Christ, are, are now called to, to go and live in the world and to journey into, in, in this world and eventually toward the promised land and being nourished by Christ in this present evil world. And so it is this Passover meal that was so familiar to the church and also to the disciples that we find Christ commemorating here in Luke chapter 22. But what is so special about this particular Passover is that it was the last official Passover in world history. Now, the disciples did not know that. They didn't understand perfectly what was all going on, and they said, "Now, well, this is going to be a special one because it's the final one. They didn't, they didn't get that. Still to this day, many Jews uh, don't understand uh, that very nature either. Many, uh, many devout Jews, sincere but sincerely wrong, still practice the Old Testament a ritual of the Passover. But in actuality, Jesus, as the king of the church, as the one to whom uh, the Passover in the Old Testament pointed and the one who said here, uh, this Passover, uh, this, this, this Passover, I have a great desire to eat this Passover with you. He holds the last and the final Passover, the last and the true, final, real Passover in world history. And At the end of that final Passover, as the disciples all are sitting around the table, he continues on and he simply morphs over or he changes the the Passover and he now institutes the Lord's Supper. He takes the wine, the cup, and he says to them after he had given thanks take and this and divide it among yourselves and then of course the bread he tells them to take and to eat uh, that it is his body and that we are to do it in remembrance of him do it in remembrance of me and it is so very simple In one sense, as it is very, very profound, the New Testament church is simply called to commemorate uh, the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. The second time, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, upon the clouds unto salvation. We are called to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament Passover Lamb of God. Now, for the bulk of our time remaining, I'd like to submit to you just a few different ways, three or four different ways to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the way in which we are to remember him. We begin with this basic foundational truth that is self-evident in the Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. Jesus said, of course, didn't he, after he famously saved Nicodemus, he said, today salvation is come to your house, he said, because Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. That is the mission of Jesus, That's the great work. That's the core. That's the goal. That's the foundation. That's the the, the the focus of what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do to seek and to save the lost. And so the first thing that we ought to be remembering, even at this time of worship, just prior to communion today and at the table uh, this evening, God willing, is that the church of the living God is saved by sovereign grace. Saved by sovereign grace. One of the great hallmarks of the faith is that God's grace is gracious, but God's grace is also sovereign. That is, it is God initiated, it is God founded, it is God, the the substance of it is of God, it's all about him. It's initiated by him, it's planned out by him, and it's enacted by him. We, of course, are called to be responsible people. We are called, of course, uh, to exercise faith in him. But he, uh, through it all, is ultimately sovereign as the sovereign being of the universe, not only creatively, but also redemptively, that is, salvifically. And so, when we are saved by the grace of God, when we are saved by the blood of the Son of God, it is only by sovereign grace. Why are you saved? Well, it's because God has made that distinction in your life. And you know, the, we find the very same language in the Old Testament in, in uh, relation to the Passover, like great truth illustrated. Just before the Lord gave very specific direction to the Passover, we read these words in Luke or in Exodus, rather, Exodus 11 and verse 7. The Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. It's the Lord who put that different the Lord who put that distinction between the people of God and the people who were not the people of God. It's the Lord who did that. And you see, He still does the same today. When we may be saved by the grace of God we may be among those of whom the New Testament church calls the ones who are called to be holy ones. And why is that? Well, it's because the Lord put that distinction in your heart and in your life. Why did Israel have that distinction put upon them? Did they earn it? Was it because they were ethnically somehow honorable? That's not it at all. You see, it was only because God loved them, Deuteronomy 7 tells us. You see, it wasn't that the Israelites were somehow a step above the Egyptians. It wasn't somehow that they were a little bit better than the Egyptians. It wasn't somehow that uh, they, they had the, the inside knowledge uh, on the Egyptians and they had found uh, some kind of secret code or, or some kind of secret no, they were, they were similar sinners to all the other people around them. But you see, it was the Lord who says in His Word that it is the Lord who puts that distinction between His people Israel and those who are not His people. God has mercy on them because it is He who chose them. You see... Why Moses? Why Noah and his family? Why Abraham and his seed? Why Esther and Ruth and Paul and Luke and Timothy? Why are you saved, dear believer, and your neighbor down the street is not? Is it because somehow that you are more worthy of the love of God? Why does God put that distinction between the unbeliever and you, believer? Why is that? You see, there's only one answer to that, biblical, true, accurate answer, and that is this. Because of God's sovereign love, you can't get any deeper and any higher and any further than the sovereign love of God. You see, it is not because somehow that we have a free will And we desired, and we decided rather one Tuesday morning when we got up, well, now it's a good time to make a choice for Jesus. And now, ever since, I desired with my own fallen, depraved will to make a choice for him. Now everything's right in the world. No. Faith indeed is an activity of the will. Yes, it is. But when we do exercise faith, it's only because he loved us first. We love him because he first loved us and every single born-again believer at some point comes to understand something of this. I don't think we'll ever, ever fully grasp the, the depth of it. But we come to appreciate, I believe, the more we grow and mature in grace, the beauty of the nature of sovereign love and sovereign grace. Because we, we grow and mature, don't we, in uh, the, the awareness of self. And we come to see that truth of Jeremiah 17, that the heart is desperately wicked. Uh, no one can know it. And the longer we, we live as Christians, the more we are aware. My heart is an absolute cesspool of sin. And we begin to connect the dots, don't we, from Scripture that w- with awareness that says, it could have never been me who initiated this grace in my life. It is only, you see, of God only of his sovereign love, only of his sovereign mercy. And so we remember his sovereign saving grace. Tis not that I did choose thee, the poet puts it, for Lord that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee hadst thou not chosen uh, me. Thou from... The sin that stained me has cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Do this in remembrance of me remember that Christ's salvation is graciously sovereign. But then secondly, we ought to remember that we are saved by Jesus Christ alone. These are overlapping thoughts, but uh, they're, they're, they're distinct but overlapping. We are saved by Jesus Christ alone. Why was Israel? Saved from death. Why were their households not touched by death at the time of the 10th plague? The answer is very simple, because of the Passover lamb. It wasn't because of the instructions, though that was part of it. It wasn't because of uh, the, the activity that was going on, as was part of the, the entire guidance But it was ultimately all at at core because of the lamb that was slain and that was painted on the doorposts of the house. It's blood painted on the doorposts of the house. You see, Israel was spared because there was death by way of a substitute. The lamb was the substitute the people were spared. The firstborn was spared. And so it is, you see, spiritually as well. We are saved because of the substitute, with a capital S, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish. We have the sentence of death, spiritual death upon us. Everyone. That the blood of the Lamb saves. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1 in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Had nothing to do with money. From your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. It's it's nothing earthly. That's what he's saying. But with the precious blood of Christ as a Lamb without blemish. And without spot. John puts it this way in one John one and verse seven. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin, and that's why there's such beauty in that in that beautiful hymn. There is wonder working, wonder working power in the blood. You see, it's all because of Jesus Christ. There were many who died in Egypt because of God's sovereign, just justice. But there was many spared in Israel because of the lamb. And so it is also spiritually, you see. People die, and people die in their sins and are cast away forever. And that is God's righteous judge justice being enacted. But we remember, don't we, also at the time of communion, that everyone deserves God's justice. But the Lamb of God comes as the substitute, and the Father's justice comes down upon him. And he is slain in the place of sinners, spiritually. And he receives the justice And in turn, we may receive the mercy. And so when we commemorate Christ's death, we remember not only that we are saved by his grace, but that we are saved specifically because Jesus Christ takes the place of sinners. You and I, dear believer, we deserve eternal death. We deserve eternal death. It's so easy to say, and it rolls off our tongue so easily, especially when we've been brought up with the Bible in our homes. But it's a very sobering truth. We deserve eternal death, but instead, God in his mercy, because of Christ, founded upon Christ, we receive eternal life. It's a tremendous, glorious truth. And therefore, you see, we remember not only His sovereign grace, but do this in remembrance of me, we remember Jesus. We remember Jesus. But then thirdly, we have to remember that we are saved by connection to the blood, which is by faith. And we are familiar, I I trust, with those uh, familiar words with the Apostle Paul uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote in in Ephesians chapter two: "By grace, or you've been saved through faith, and not of works, uh, lest any man should boast." We are saved by grace through faith. Uh, Paul puts it this way, and a little bit differently in Romans five and verse one, and he says, "We are justified by faith," and. by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and it is so necessary you see that there is a is a connection between Christ and ourselves and that connection is God's way the connection is saving faith saving faith it's clear from the Ephesians 2, Romans 5, and of course, a multiple other places in, in Scripture. But we may ask, well, well how do we find that connection of faith in the Old Testament Passover? Well, we have to remember that there were a lot of lambs killed at the Passover time. The throats would have been slit, likely, and... There would have been gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of blood all over the place. But what had to happen with that blood? What had to happen with that blood? That blood needed to be painted on the doorposts of the house in order for it to be effective for individuals. And you see, there is a parallel there too, isn't there? It is all good and well that the Lord Jesus Christ died and that his blood flowed freely on Calvary's hill. That's a wonderful, objective truth. In fact, it's a foundational truth. It's a very important truth. But there are some people who say, well, yes, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ shed his blood. That he shed his blood at one point in history. And his blood flowed down for sinners in Calvary, in a place just outside of Jer- the city of Jerusalem. And that's a wonderful uh, point to, uh, to, to assent to, to agree to, to affirm. But the question then comes to us, but is that blood upon the doorposts of our hearts personally? You see, that's where saving faith comes in. Saving faith personally in a personal Christ is so important. It's a beautiful truth that Jesus lived and Jesus died. But Jesus' death has to become my life. And how does Jesus' death and his blood become my life? God's ordained way is by when his spirit works the grace in our hearts. It's not our own free will that initiates it. God forbid that. But it is by grace through faith. Ephesians 2. We are justified, made right with God. By faith we have peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in him, you see. That's what faith is. It's that personal connection with God. It's the empty hand of faith that reach out, reaches out to the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. or saved by Christ. And faith is the means to that end. And so uh, we ask ourselves again, Do we have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the doorpost, the metaphoric, the pictured doorpost of our heart spiritually? You see, that's very important. And how do we know that? Well, have we come to Him as a needy sinner and saying with the publican in the temple, Luke chapter 18, God be merciful to me, a sinner, I need you, Lord. I need you. I need your blood. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Not just, I don't want to go to hell. But do we need the Lord as a Savior? Because we are wretched sinners. That we have a heart that is not right with God. And our heart needs to be made right with God. And so we, we, we reach out a hand and we say, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, bless me. You see, that is faith. That is faith. You see, there are a lot of things that can be uh, duplicated and that a lot of people think are, are, are real, true religion that would reflect that somebody is right with God. Some people say, well, this person is kind. Well, Christians are supposed, to, of course, to be kind, but, but unbelievers can be kind. Or somebody uses manners. Well, it's wonderful to have manners, isn't it? Christians should reflect manners, should, should have Christian manners. And, and, and you could go through a whole list of, of things that both believers and unbelievers may have, and every believer should have. But there is something, you see, that a believer can never, or an unbeliever rather, an unbeliever can never have, and a believer does have. And what is that? That's a hunger for Jesus Christ. You see, the devil cannot reproduce it. He doesn't want to reproduce it. Your own wicked heart cannot somehow conjure up a desire for God and a longing and a love for God when the love of God has never been put in our hearts in the first place in a saving way. And so when we do have these longings and our desires, in our hearts, well, it's because God puts it there. That we need the blood of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan doesn't do that. You and I can't do that. But God, praise be to him, he does do that. And so when we say, I hunger and I thirst after the righteousness of God, you see, that is the definition of faith in its very most simplistic form. By grace are you saved, Ephesians 2, through faith. It is the gift of God. And what is the gift? The gift, some argue, is the grace, and others argue is the faith. And the most proper answer to that question is, what is the gift? And the answer is both. God's grace and, God's, and the faith that we have in the, the God of grace is a gift. From him. And praise be to him that he does give us that wonderful gift. And so you see, there must be a connection between Christ's blood and us. And that connection is gracious faith. And so we remember that Christ is sovereign, we remember that Christ is Christ. And we remember that the way of Christianity, the way of salvation, is through gracious faith in him. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. And so I pray that by the grace of God, that every believer here as well may remember Christ, remember his work in such a way. And we will reflect at the table. At one last way in which we are to remember him as well. And so uh, we, we close this uh, part of our message also with a, with a word of prayer. Let's pray together.